Good day, listeners. This is your boy Bryce from Brothers on Tennis. Now, I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing this morning. <laughs> this was not a scheduled record day for Isaac and myself. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure what everybody is doing to help pass the time during this whole coronavirus situation and our shelter in place and our desire to stay at home, but I was, I was feeling a bit reflective this morning, and I, I think it this may have been a time that a lot of us have felt, you know, a bit reflective, but the craziest thing is that I was feeling a little bit reflective about my history as a spectator in the world of tennis, and, you know, we spent a lot of the time on the podcast really talking about what's kind of going on in the current game and we don't spend a lot of our time talking about the past. And I do agree that, you know, certain things like the labor cuts that that uh, Roger Federer put in place, you know, meant to give tribute back to the players of, of a previous generation uh, that ended up being the shoulders upon which the current generation stood on. I, I think it's important for us to continue to reflect back on their contributions to the game. Now, I'm not necessarily doing that <laughs> either this morning. Um, I, I'm really thinking more about a question that I asked Isaac in the episode we did a week or so ago, where we were asking each other the questions about, you know, what we felt about either certain tennis topics or about other uh, non-tennis related subjects. And one of the questions that I asked Isaac was, what player do you never root against? And I believe the answer was Roger Federer and that makes a whole lot of sense based upon kind of who we follow. But it made me think a little bit about what my answer to that question would have been. And I noticed that I tended to, that's the way I tended to pick my favorite players throughout my history of watching the game. I always had someone on the men's side and on the women's side who I would never vote against really during their entire career. Now, I'm not sure if you guys will even ever hear this episode. <laughs> I didn't talk to our producer about recording it. I didn't talk to Isaac about uh, recording it. I just felt like recording it, and I'm going to pass it on to Isaac and Chad. If they decide they want to share it with the group, then they can. Uh, if not, I, I just feel like kind of expressing my, my, my thoughts here. And, and hopefully, you know, I'm calling this kind of my walk back down memory lane. Um, hopefully some of the players that I talk about in the past will kind of uh, refresh them in your memory and be like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot about them. I, 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 I liked uh, them. So anyway, let me just kind of start with when I first started watching tennis, it was in the late 70s. Um, I started watching it very casually because my parents were watching tennis. And when I think about the first people or the first players that really caught my attention, 
I think I started out on the men's side, and, and the first person that caught my attention was Bjorn Borg. Um, at that time, he had his rivalry going with John McEnroe, and it was fire versus ice. And um, I, what I liked about Borg was that he seemed very calm, cool, and collected. I I really liked his ground strokes and his speed across, you know, you know, on the court. Uh, and I liked all of that about as much as I disliked. John's kind of fiery attitude and how he would kind of blow up. And at that time, I was young. I, I didn't have a real appreciation for uh, his aggressive game, his net game. Um, so you've heard us talk about in the past, you know, sometimes when you have a rivalry, it's kind of hard to be in both camps. I mean, we see that today with Roger and Rafa. There are a lot of people that are big fans of both of those, even though they are rivals. Um I don't believe that was as much of the case with Borg and McEnroe. I think you were kind of either in the McEnroe camp or you were kind of in the Borg camp. And and I was definitely initially in the Borg camp. So he was kind of my favorite in the late 70s and very early 80s. As you know, his career kind of ended, you know, we like to say prematurely by him retiring at the age of 26. Um, maybe it was the right thing for him, maybe it wasn't, but as quickly as I had picked him as my favorite, uh, he was pretty much out of the game. Now, during that time, there was another player from Argentina that, I don't know, for whatever reason, I really liked his game, and that was Jose Luis Clerc. Uh, he, he kind of reminded me of a one-handed backhand version of Carlos Moya. And I liked him because he had, he had power when he needed it. He had consistency. Um, he was thought to be pretty much a clay quarter, but he showed that he could play on the other surfaces. I still don't know how well he ever really did on grass, but he ended up being pretty good on hard courts as well. And, um, and I really liked him, but he didn't have that that factor that um, that number one like I would never ever root against him type vibe like I kind of had for Borg. Uh, what I always thought was very interesting was out of Argentina they had two beasts at that time. They had Clerk and they had Guillermo Vilas, and Vilas was kind of like the you could call him the Rafael Nadal of that time period. He was left-handed. He was big and muscular, and he just overpowered people, and he was extremely dominant on clay. Uh, and what was weird about it is I think they were both in the top ten. I mean, well, they were both clearly in the top ten. They may have even been in the top five at the same time. Now, you'll have to forgive me this morning. I don't have stats in front of me and all this. So I'm just kind of going off of memory, so... Don't crucify me if I have some data a little off, but I do believe they were in the top five at the same time. But I remember there being some sort of rift between them. Although they were from the same country, they weren't necessarily friends and they didn't necessarily, you know, get along real well. So, but anyway, I knew that Clerk for me could not be that next number one guy for me in terms of who I followed. But there was this guy 
that was coming up the ranks. As a matter of fact, I the first match I ever saw him play, he was playing against Beyond Borg, and his name was Ivan Lindel from Czechoslovakia. And although, and I think he lost to Borg that day, but even though he lost, I saw something in Lindel that I absolutely loved. Uh, I I loved his one-handed backhand. Uh, I loved his forehand. His forehand was, was, was a beast. He had great passing shots. He had uh, kind of a nice, I don't know. He had a, his first serve wasn't awesome, awesome yet, but it was really good. And he kind of had a very stoic type of personality. Um, you know, a little bit like Borg. I mean, Borg was like I said, calm, cool, and collected, but he's, he, he seemed almost a little passive, whereas Lindell seemed like he was a man on a mission, like he, he had something to do. And so there was something about this Lindell, that guy, that I really liked. Well, before I go any further, kind of as I transcend into the 80s with the men, I didn't have such problems on the women's side. Um, obviously, when I started watching in the late 70s, that was really when the Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett uh, rivalry was just really starting to get hot. And um, <laughs> Martina was my favorite from Jump Street. And it's interesting because you may would have thought based upon why I liked Borg and why I didn't care as much for McEnroe, that I would be a Chris Everett fan. Well, it that wasn't the case. <laughs> Chris Everett, to me, her, her game, and like I said, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid at this point. I'm, what, 10, 11 years old. Her game was very boring to me. I didn't have the appreciation for her mental fortitude, for the consistency she had, and not only her results, but in her game. I, I wasn't mature enough as, as a tennis fan to really appreciate that at the time. You know, Martina, though, I appreciated her game from, from Jump Street. I mean, she, her aggressive style, her net play, um, she had a similar game to Macro, if you will, but she didn't have you know, the negative outbursts. I mean, she was emotional. I mean, Martine was definitely very emotional during those days, but it was because she, you know, she was passionate. She wanted to win. You could say the same thing for John McEnroe, but it, it just, it just didn't play out the same way for me. So Martina was my A1 from day one. And I loved her game and I was solidly in her camp. As a matter of fact, Martina Navratilova was the person that I never voted against from, what, the late 70s until she retired in, what was it, the mid-90s uh, from singles. Now, there may have been one match, just one match with Martina that I was kind of like, mm, if she were to lose one, maybe this would be the one. And... Obviously, I am talking about the 1990 Wimbledon final where she played Zena Garrison. Now, I was really torn in this match 
and I actually told Zena this, so so she knows uh, I felt this way. You know, Martina was going for her record ninth Rumble, and she was going to break the record with, I think, uh, Helen Willis Moody. And so I really wanted Martina to get that. I really wanted her to, to stamp her place in history with that win. But Zena Garrison was, you know, she was my Venus and Serena at that time. She was the African-American player that was really out there doing it. You know, she won Olympic medals. She, you know, with the Fed Cup team. She had gotten up to number four in the world, which was great because this was a time that you had, you know, Martina and Chris and Hannah Malakova and Pam Shriver. And, you know, you had a lot of really good players during this time. So to make it to number four in the world, she, she really did some things. But I also knew this was probably going to be her one and only shot to win a Grand Slam title. And so, although I say I never voted against Martina during her career, which is true, even in that match, I didn't vote against Martina. I just kind of felt like if Zazina won that match, I would be okay with that. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, we'll talk about it later, but I guess it's a little way, a little bit, you know, how I feel about the Williams sisters. You know, I felt like I would never vote against Serena, uh, excuse me, Venus. Let me make that very clear. I would never vote against Venus. But if she had to lose to anyone, let it be to Serena. So during that 80s period, there was another player. And, you know, she did pretty good. I think she may have cracked the top 10 just barely. Um, And I don't think she won a lot of tournaments of note, but her style, there was something about this lady's style that captivated me, and 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 believe it or not, um, I, I really patterned some things in my, my personal game after this lady, and I don't know how many of you remember Andrea Temesvara. She played in the 80s, and I forgot what country she was from. I don't, I don't know if it was Hungary or... Um, it was one of those type of countries. And this woman had the most insane topspin you'd ever seen off your ground stroke. I mean, she had a, uh, a lot of spin on a serve. She had a lot of uh, topspin on a forehand and, and her backhand. And, um, you know, in my personal game, I started using a, what, well, what my coach used to call excessive topspin. Um, and although I don't hit with quite as much spin today, in comparison to your average player, they say, you know, I hit with a lot of spin and believe it or not, you know, you would maybe try to guess a lot of different players, like where that started from in terms of who I was watching. Probably not a lot of people would think Andrea Temesvari, but that's really, you know, kind of who it was for me. So moving back to the men's side. You know, becoming this Lindell fan in in the early 80s, another reason why this made a lot of sense for me is, if you think about it, when John McEnroe kind of lost Bjorn Borg as, you know, his, his chief rival, it had to become somebody else. Now, 
you know, some people thought, you know, maybe that was Connors. And and granted, you know, there were a lot of heated matches between McEnroe and Connors, but, you know, I really didn't see them as rivals, rivals. I really still saw them as two players from two different generations. I mean, Connors had a very lengthy career, so I think his career kind of overlapped some days with John McEnroe, and they had, you know, a period of time there where they had some really exciting matches. But, no, nah, I didn't really see Connors as that that person. Plus, I was not a big Connors fan. Um, there was just a lot about Jimmy Connors that I didn't like. Um, his game, his personality, just, it was a lot. Now, I have heard, to be fair, off the court, you know, he's he's a very nice and very generous man. And so, I, you know, I, I like to believe in that. But in terms of what I saw on my television screen, he was someone that I absolutely did not like. So I, I, I didn't give him a, low, a whole lot of credit for many things. Once again... As I matured as a tennis fan, I was able to appreciate some of the things that he did. What also didn't help me was kind of my my, my best friend in tennis growing up, Adrian, uh, who um, Isaac and I both know pretty well. He was a huge Connors fan. And so much so that he was playing with a T2000. I don't know if you guys even remember that racket. That was the kind of like, I don't know, iron or steel racket that John, that uh, Jimmy uh, Connors used that had that kind of wire wiring around the, the, the head. Um, he played with that racket and actually played very well with it. Um, his serve looked just like uh, Connors. I mean, he was a right-handed version of Connors. So when we would play growing up, it was always kind of like Lindell versus Connors uh, because I was trying to emulate uh, Lindell's serve in his forehand at the time. But the person that I really saw as McEnroe's rival was Lindell. Uh, you know, it was kind of like this Czechoslovakian player versus the American. Once again, it was the very, you know, John McEnroe may be one of the most naturally athletic and talented tennis players we've ever seen on the men's side against someone. I mean, people did not call Lindell a natural athlete. Uh, they called him a machine, really, which was a compliment in a lot of ways because it spoke to how driven he was and how dedicated he was and, and just what, you know, he was willing to do whatever it took to win. And there was a discipline there. Uh, there was a focus there that I saw with Lundell that I loved. And when they, and they, and, and the secret sauce that you need in any really good rivalry is that McEnroe and Lundell could not stand each other. Absolutely couldn't stand, stand each other. And, you know, it, it's, it's beautiful to watch nowadays that they have a, a decent relationship. I still don't think they would say they're best friends, but, you know, they have a common history. And, and you know, that kind of helps, um, you know, with maybe some past feelings. But they couldn't stand each other. So, once again, here was another rivalry where you were either in Lindell's camp or you were in Mac McEnroe's camp. And I was solidly 
in Lundell's camp. And um, so, and when they, <laughs> when they would play, you had the big, you know, contrasting styles. You know, McEnroe was trying to come to the net at every opportunity. Lindell was all about being powerful and being precise. And, you know, their rivalry got to a point that when McEnroe would come to the net, Lindell wouldn't always look for the lob or the pass a shot. You know, he would say, okay, I'm going to give it to you straight down the pipe. If you can handle it, too good. If you can't, and I can even peg you with the shot, even better. So uh, I really, 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 I mean, Lindell, un until much, much later, I always said Lindell and Navratilova were my two favorite players of all time. And it's very interesting, you know, there's a lot of similarities between the two. I mean, they, they both hail from Czechoslovakia. They both ended up becoming U.S. citizens. And something that I credit both of them for introducing or really, you know, bringing to the forefront of their tours is both of them really brought that added level of physicality. They both knew that to have an edge on their opponents, one of the things they needed to do was to get into the absolute best physical shape that they could get into. And so, you know, Martina is often credited for that on, on the women's side. I don't know if Lindell is credited with it as much on the men's side, but he really did, you know, bring that to the game. Now, there were a couple other people that I enjoyed watching during that period um, on the men's side, other than Lundell. Um, if, if I mentioned before that Guillermo Vilas was like the Rafael Nadal of the 70s, well, I also liked the Rafael Nadal of, of the 80s and, uh, and early 90s, and that was Tomas Muster. Uh, once again, Left-handed, just very dominating, powerful player. Um, he's from Austria. Um, he recently was uh, a member of Dominique Team's coaching staff for a while, but you know, rumor has it <laughs> there was a kind of a clashing of of uh, of minds there, so that didn't work out for real long. But uh, Mooster, I just enjoyed watching that just how dominant he was. And, and one of the things that I will always respect about Mooster is that uh, during the height of his career, he was hit by a car. And, you know, people thought he'd never play again. And you should, I mean, if you have the time, go out there and look the story up on YouTube or, or, or the internet. Uh, he... This guy was so driven that there's footage of him practicing in a, I think he's in a wheelchair or some sort of chair, hitting balls. And he successfully came back to the tour and just, you know, that was really, really admirable. So, uh, so I always liked to watch Mooster. I thought he was fun to watch. But there was a country that came out with a crop of players that just blew my mind. And and that was Sweden. And I don't know, you know, Sweden is a very small country and 
you know, it was amazing that they had Bjorn Borg. But no one really thought that they were going to, you know, come out with just this crew of players that they did. And you have to imagine, or, you know, that these players are all really coming in the footsteps of Bjorn Borg. You know, his success really uh, invigorated the tennis programs there in Sweden. And I'm going to just name off a few of these players. And you may not know all of them, but I just remember watching all of them. You know, Mats Vilander, Anders Jared. Uh, I had a very, very uh, special liking to Stefan Edberg because one of the things that had been stereotyped about the Swedish players is that they were all kind of playing in Borg's image. You know, baseliners, two-handed backhands, um, you know, very consistent, great play court players. And Stefan Edberg just completely broke out of that mold. I mean, he had this huge serve. I mean, ridiculous kick second serve. Um, just textbook volleys. Had a one-handed backhand. Was always looking to move forward. And I would say he was probably the second most successful Swede during that period, obviously behind, you know, Mats Vilander. There was also uh, Joachim Nystrom, uh, Thomas Inquest. Um, there was even uh, a Swede that came and played college in America, uh, Mikhail Pernfors, who was, I think, seriously underrated. I think he made it to the, the finals of the French Open one year. So I always really enjoyed watching the Swedes play, and, and they had their moment. And, and then, you know, that group kind of faded out in the mid-90s. mid, mid 90s. So as we start to transition into the mid-90s, back on the women's side, this is when Martina, after a very stellar career, and, and, and you've heard me say on other podcasts, I love Serena Williams, and I acknowledge her greatness but to me, I do not agree with her being the greatest player of all time. Um, and that's not anything really to do with Serena. It has to do with I don't necessarily agree with how people determine who is who should be in that conversation for the greatest because they're only pretty much looking at singles results and they're pretty much only looking at Grand Slam. Uh, and so I think that is a very one-dimensional way of looking at who's the greatest ever because it does not take in consideration doubles. It does not take in consideration mixed doubles. It does not take in consideration overall match wins. It does not take in consideration um, a lot of the time streaks um, that players have had that may, may be unmatched by others. And so when I look at the whole ball of wax, I might go as far as to say that Serena may be the greatest singles player we've seen in the history of the game. But as far as I'm concerned, Martina Navratilova holds the title of greatest of all time. 
because I take in consideration singles, doubles, mixed doubles, the streaks that were the period that Martina was dominant on. We have not dominant in. We have not seen that level of dominance in any other player in the open era. Not Steffi, not the Williams sisters. No one has the numbers that Martina has. Um, and so I'm not trying to change anybody's mind here. You know, everyone has the right to their opinion and to determine what they want, how they want. But as for me, Martina still holds greatest of all time in my mind. And to me, there's not even anyone close to second to her. But during the mid-90s, she was winding down and she had made a decision that she wasn't going to play singles anymore. And, and um, she later came back and played. Um, well, I shouldn't say came back because she never really left, but she continued to play doubles and mixed doubles competitively, but she uh, kind of let the singles go. So I had to find who's my next go-to, who's my next, I will not root against uh, this player. And there was this two-hander. And when I say two-hander, I mean two-hander on both sides that had a ferociousness that I absolutely loved. It was almost kind of like a Rafael Nadal on the women's side. If you notice, I will refer to a lot of people as Rafael Nadal because I think he's one of the greatest fighters I have seen in the game. Uh, so that's a high, high compliment when I do that. But Monica Sellers came on during an interesting time in tennis. You know, you had some of the most recent greats kind of leaving the game. You know, Chris Severin, Martina, Matnikova, Shriver, all of them. And then you had kind of this new group coming up. Uh, with your, your Steffi Graffs and Gabriella Sabatini's. And, uh, so it was an opportunity for somebody to step up. And Graf, Steffi Graff was kind of that first player to do that. And I'll admit, you know, you know Steffi Graff just was not initially one of my favorites. And probably because she was the one that kind of helped usher Martina out of the game. But, um, you know, to me, she was all serve and forehand. And, you know, I didn't have, a, at the time, I didn't have a great deal of respect for her backhand. Uh, you know, I later learned how sick that one-handed slice backhand was that she had. And I really didn't notice or I didn't appreciate how great her movement was on the court. Uh, I did recognize her as a strong competitor, but she just wasn't one of my favorites um, at all. And so when Salas started getting her game together, I was like, wow, this lady is a beast. And I was just amazed at how effective she was having two hands on both sides because, you know, I knew as a tennis player that, you know, there was going to be some restrictions there by her playing like that. Uh, but it didn't matter. She, you know, she, her, her, the precision of her shot and the aggression, you know, she had precision and aggression. And that's sometimes 
you know, a hard combination of skills to, to manage because when you have people that are really aggressive, normally they're aggressive because they're approaching the net. And normally they, with that aggression becomes a higher propensity for unforced errors. Well, she didn't have a lot of unforced errors and she didn't charge the net. Um, and so I was really intrigued by her. So I was thinking, okay, I'm thinking Monica Sellis is going to be that next person that I don't see myself voting against. And, um, and she was living up to the challenge. I was not disappointed with that selection at all. Now, I do want to mention there were a couple of other players during, you know, this, this period that I liked for some different reasons. Number one, there was Gabriella Sabatini. And, you know, I thought Gabriella was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen on the tennis courts. Uh, she just had elegance and, and, and that kind of laid back style she had. And uh, who didn't love that backhand uh, that she had? But I could never depend on her to get the wins on Graf. She had a couple of big ones, but most of the time, Graf really had, you know, her number. Also, you know, Zena was kind of, you know, getting close to the end of her career. Um, and there was another African-American who was coming up, and her name was Shonda Rubin. And... I was excited because, you know, it was another African-American that was doing really well. She had a very different game from Xena. And she came from the home cut. I mean, both of us originally being from Louisiana. I'm originally from Shreveport. I think she was from Lafayette, I believe. And I said, okay. Now, so I kind of followed Shonda and um, Gabriella, but... Neither one of them had kind of that that X factor for them to be my number one like like Celis did. And unfortunately, we all know what happened. You know, Celis was really doing it. I mean, she was out there. She was beating Graf left and right. Uh, when she was stabbed by a deranged fan who, let's remember... His whole goal in stabbing her was so that, and he was a German fan, was so that Steffi Graf could once again be number one and stay there. Uh, it's so frustrating and disappointing that he got absolutely what he wanted because at the time that he stabbed Celis, Graf did not have an answer for Celis. And he took that woman's career from her. And all credit to Celis, you know, after she recovered, uh, and I know I'm being very casual with saying it like that. I mean, I, I'm sure it was hell what she went through. But once she recovered as much as she could, and she came back to the game, just the return to the game was amazing. But the fact that she was also able to add to her grand slam singles title count was even more remarkable. She won an Australian... Um, open, but uh, I just don't think she was ever able to return 
to the player that she was before she got stabbed. And, and how could she? I mean, that, that was such an insane um, thing to go through. But the result of that is Steffi lost her rival. And not only did she lose her rival, she lost to a rival that had figured her out and had her number. So in comparison, if you think of, you know, what would Venus's Grand Slam totals look like if Serena unexpectedly had been out of the game? You know, how many French Opens would Roger have won if Rafa had unexpectedly been out of the game? How many additional Grand Slam titles would McEnroe have had if Lundell had unexpectedly gone out of the game? The point I'm trying to make here is I've heard the argument all the time. Like, oh, you know, it's not Steffi's fault. And I totally agree with that. Steffi, you know, had nothing to do with that stabbing. Um, but you can't lie to yourself and say, and, and say that she didn't benefit from it. And so it is for that reason that, for me, when I look at Steffi's numbers, they will always have an asterisk by them. Steffi beat who was on the court at the time, and that's all you can ever ask for of a player. But she benefited from Monica Sellers being stabbed and being out of the game. And I honestly don't know if Steffi would have had as many Grand Slam titles as Chris or Martina had Sellers not exited the game. So, moving back to the men's side, we're, we're late 80s, getting ready to go into the 90s here. Lindell, who starts to have some real serious back issues. The end of his career is, is near. And, and, I, and I knew it was done when he took that loss to Pete Sampras in the U.S. Open. It was the year that Pete won his first U.S. Open. Um, that was the first time I saw Lindell, and I was like, you know what? I think it's kind of the end of the road for him. Even though he could, he continued to play a little bit after that, for a while after that, it, it you know, it was it was done. So, who was going to be my new number one on the men's side? Well, there was this guy, flashy, long hair, images, everything, Andre Agassi. Now, one of the things that I, and once again, I think it was the tournament and uh, it was in one of those Northeastern, was it in New Hampshire? I think it was in New Hampshire. Uh, I don't think that tournament, well, I know that tournament doesn't exist anymore, but it was a lead up tournament to the U.S. Open and Andre Agassi was playing Lundell. And one of the things that I used to always say about Lundell when I was following him was that he had the biggest forehand in the game. Well, this Andre Agassi had a hell of a forehand on him. Uh, just completely blew my mind. And it was killing me because Lundell was my guy and I wasn't voting against him, but I was really impressed at how this kid hit the ball. I mean, hitting the ball off the rise, uh, an amazing forehand. His backhand was very solid. He was flashy. He was an American. I was like, you know what? 
I like this guy. And next thing I knew, Andre Agassi was the one for me. And I never, and I emphasize, never voted against Andre Agassi in his entire career. Never. Um, Andre Agassi, for me, and I always relate these players in terms of, you know, what I picked up from, from them and implemented in my own game. I used to have a one-handed backhand, and it, you know, obviously I was trying to pattern myself after Wendell. But my, my top spin one-handed backhand was, it, it never really got the job done for me. It wasn't consistent. It wasn't always effective. I always had a pretty good slice backhand, and I, I credit that to, to Martina Navratilova. But uh, my one-hander just wasn't doing it. And I remember watching a match, and I think Andre was at the U.S. Open, and I, I, I don't even remember the match. I don't remember who he was playing. But I do remember just watching him use – I mean, we knew his, his forehand was a beast. But watching the way he used his two-handed backhand to not only set up his forehand, but sometimes he used it as a weapon itself. I said, I've got to go try this. And so I tried to look and see what he was doing. And I went and I tried to emulate it. And of course, I came nowhere close to how Andre hits it. But it gave me a shot that was much more consistent for me. And one that, you know, at many times could become a weapon for me. So, um, so Agassi, you know, was, was a key player for me and my own development of my game. Um, now, during the Agassi period, of course, we know his chief rival was Pete Sampras, and Pete fell in the same category for me as Connors and McEnroe, and, you know, he seemed devoid of, of personality. Um, I felt like his game at the time was very one-dimensional. I mean, he had big serve and then his serve allowed for him to you know come in with the next either big forehand or whatever it just I didn't have a lot of respect for his game like I did Agassiz now also Pete falls in that category of once again as I continue to mature as a tennis fan you know I don't know. I, I, I definitely grew to appreciate his game a little more. Uh, the appreciation didn't grow like it did for McEnroe. I mean, I went from absolutely hating McEnroe. I shouldn't use the word hate, but, you know, couldn't have just liked him more as a tennis player to after he took that six months off and he came back, maybe it was the whole nostalgic type feeling, but McEnroe I loved, and I had a strong appreciation for his game. Never really kind of got that way uh, with Pete. But uh, Agassi was my guy. There were a couple other players during Agassi's period that I really liked, but they could never supplant Agassi uh, as my favorite. I was always very intrigued by Marcelo Rios. Seemed like he had every shot in the book, yet it always seemed like something was missing. And... He falls in that category of, of, of the very few players that 
one, or not one, excuse me, that ended up reaching number one in the rankings, but never got a Grand Slam title. I think his best or his closest uh, opportunity was, I think he was in the finals of the Australian Open one year, but, you know, he didn't get the job done there. So Rios was always very entertaining for me to watch. You know, um, maybe not as believable as a number one, um, but he was always very entertaining to watch. And then, you know, of course, later in Agassi's career, there was James Blake, who was someone as African-American male, you know, someone for me to really look up to and to, to follow. I mean, I, I started watching tennis kind of after Arthur Ashe was done, so I really didn't go through that whole period. And then I really hadn't seen any other African-American males of note. That got me very excited. I mean, there was Rodney Harmon, but, you know, Rodney never really did anything. And there was Malavia Washington, who did a few things. He even made it to the finals of, of, of Wimbledon one year. And, but, you know, it just, he did well, but, you know, couldn't really believe in him. Uh, but there was something about James Blake that, you know, that forehand was just mean. He had a serviceable serve. Um, he was proficient at the net. He was fast as all get out. Um, there was a little bit of a weakness there with the backhand, but he, he, he really kind of developed that in his later years. But once again, did not have anything to, to, to make me uh, consider him above Andre Agassi. Now, during this period on the women's side, you know, we know that, you know, South is out of the game. Uh, Graf is just running through everybody. And the person that caught my eye, even though she never really was around long enough to be a true number one for me in terms of somebody I was following, was M Martina Hingis. I was captivated by her results at such an early age um, and, 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 and the level of dominance she had, even though it was, it was a short period. I mean, she looked like the underdog against everybody she played, but she beat just about everyone. And something else that she did was, was she, she was kind of doing what the other Martina did. She wasn't just doing it in singles. She was one of the best doubles players in the world as well. You know, we, we saw her follow a very similar path as Martina. I mean, not the nose candy piece, but in terms of the, uh, when she retired from singles, she remained a force in, in, um, in the doubles game. I mean, you know, she had to take her suspension, like I said, for the nose candy. But when she ended up coming back, one of the top doubles players in the world. But she wasn't really someone who was around long enough for me to fully, fully, you know, you know, be on her bandwagon. Um, and part of the reason was... Um, the women's game was transitioning from 
you know, a game of finesse to a power game. And really the the person that really emphasized that was Monica Seltz. Because although you can say, well, Steffi was kind of power because she had a big serve and she had a big forehand. But, uh, you know, there was the whole lot about power screaming off of that backhand. Monica Sellis was the first one that it was like, you didn't want to go to her forehand and you didn't want to go to her backhand. So where did you go? She was, she was mean on both sides. Well, you know, yeah, Lindsay Davenport, who was kind of coming up, who had this very heavy game. And I think Martina Hingis had a very hard time um, dealing with that. But if she had a hard time dealing with that, we know that there were two sisters that were coming out of Compton, California, that she just didn't have anything for. Now, granted, we know that Hingis had, you know, Venus's number in the very beginning when Venus, you know, very first came on court. But that didn't last very long. And Venus and Serena, basically on a single standpoint, ran her out of the game. And as you can probably imagine, it did not take very long for Venus and Serena to ascend to the top of my list. And now we're talking about end of the 90s going into the 2000s. So we're going to come back to Venus and Serena because I want to talk about them for a minute. So on the men's side, you know, it seems like my favorite players always go out due to back issues. Um, you know, Lunder went out to a bad back. Agassi was going out to a bad back. And there was a person coming up who even Agassi has stated was probably the most talented player he had ever seen. Said he had every single shot in the book. And this guy's name was Roger Federer. And so, you know, I'd even watched a match with Agassi and, and Federer, and I think Agassi won that match. But I was like, okay, I see a little something there. You know, he, he, he's looking pretty good. He, he's someone to kind of keep in the back pocket for now. But let me tell you the day that Roger Federer became my favorite player, has not only become my favorite player of all time, surpassing Agassi and Linda, uh, and is also someone I have never ever voted against or rooted against, and I don't think I, I will ever, it's when Federer dethroned Pete Sampras at Wimbledon, the place where, where Pete Sampras was basically considered invincible. For Roger Federer to do that, and, and for you now to know how I felt about Pete Sampras, oh. He could do no wrong in my eyes at that point. <laughs> um, Roger was my guy. And and we know the run that Roger went on. And we know the way that he did it. And some of the records that Roger has set may never be broken. I mean, I know we've talked, we talk about the Grand Slam total number of wins. And, and, and like I said, I still feel that's a very one-dimensional way to look at things. But he's even got the lead in that still right now with the game of Pugliano. Um, but there was something about Federer that 
I saw that was kind of like a combination of things that I loved of all of my previous favorites. He kind of had the demeanor of Borg, which I love, as well as Borg speed. He had the forehand of a Lundell and an Agassi. With my new appreciation of McEnroe, he had the net game of, he didn't have a net game of McEnroe, let's be real clear, but he had a net game that was very close to that. And he even had kind of like the trick shots of a Marcelo Rios that I, I used to love to watch. So here was like the super player that embodied all these qualities that I loved from other players. So, uh, like I stated, you know, Federer is my all-time favorite male and still my favorite current player. Now, that doesn't mean I don't love or I don't respect some other players. Um, I'm in the same camp with a lot of others. You know, Roger's my number one, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for Rafael Nadal. I mean, Rafael Nadal may be the best competitor that we have seen in the men's game. Uh, and what he's done at the French Open is just ridiculous. I mean, I just, I mean it's just absolutely uh, ridiculous. And I love the fact that he and Federer are great friends. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, the, the secret sauce and a great rivalry is, you know, the potential, you know, conflict that's there between the two personalities. You don't really have that with Roger and and uh, Rafa. Uh, they clearly support each other fully uh, while still going after their individual goals. But, you know, that's why I could never say they have the greatest rivalry of all time because they don't have that conflict um, there that I think is necessary. But I have a tremendous amount of respect for Nadal. And if Federer wasn't around, the doll would probably be my favorite. But just like back in the 80s and early 90s when I was, I loved that group of Swedish players that was out. Currently, I have that same feeling for another country, and that country is France. There, if you've listened to any number of our podcasts, you have probably heard me talk about Joe Willie Sanga. I love Sanger. Uh, you know, other than absolutely getting it done at the very end, there's so many things I love about his game and his fighting, his style, and, and everything. I love, 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 love Sanger. Uh, if anyone out there can can get me the opportunity to meet Sanger, you are my hero. But who doesn't love Monfils? I mean, he is the entertainer of the tour. Uh, and, and really, you know, most people believe one of the biggest underachievers because although he has consistently entertained us, um, we think that entertainment has caused him to maybe miss out on some opportunities and winning that he should have had. Now, granted, all these players suffer from being in the, the golden age of tennis with Nadal and Federer and, and Djokovic. It's been, it's been really tough to get a slam win. I mean, you have to really tip your hat to players like Barbrinka and Andy Murray 
Uh, and then I think we have some individual wins by like Del Pocho and 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 Chillage. But you know, it's been tough to get a win in the slam uh, while these guys are around. But back to the French guys, you've heard me talk about Pui. I love his game. Uh, Simone, Gasquet, uh, Benoit Pair. The French players have this flair with the way that they play that is just too entertaining for me to watch. I remember watching Yannick Noah and Henri Leconte back in the day, um, and they are all kind of players that are like a flashback to that where you could have flair, but you could also have some really good results as well. But not over Federer for me. Back to the women, the Williams sisters. I mean, I, I like to kind of count them almost as one because that's how my love for them goes. But if I have to pick one, it's Venus. Uh, it's Venus all day, every day over Serena. Um, Venus has... And I don't mean to sound messy here, and I don't want to get the Mr. Petty Award at the end of the year, but to me, Venus just has a class about her that I don't see in Serena. Uh, there are a lot of things I see in Serena, uh, personality-wise, and I don't know her personally, but I'm just saying in terms of what she projects to the media, that seems a lot of times for show, whereas Venus seems more genuine to me. Also, I have always felt if you take Serena's, you know, determination and her drive with a lot of Venus's natural ability, Venus would have been the greatest player um, of, you know, of all. Uh, you know, I think she, she would have had it all. But that's the thing. It's hard to have it all, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I love Serena. I love Serena to death. But the reason why... I can't say she would be my number one. It's because if you're my number one, that means I root for you all the time. And I root for Serena most of the time, except for when she plays Venus. When she plays Venus, I, <laughs> I want Venus to win. Now, you know, that's been part of my heartache over the years. But like I, like I said earlier in, in this, this podcast, if Venus had to lose to someone, please let it be to Serena. So, one of the things that, I, you know, what got me to thinking about this whole walk down memory lane, because I'm going to wrap this up because, you know, we're getting close to an hour. Venus and Serena and Roger are all really at the end of their careers. And who knows with this delay of playing because of the coronavirus and, and all this, how this ultimately affects how much longer they play. So, it puts me in a position where I now have to start figuring out who's the new number one for me in the women's and the men's tour. Now, I have a couple of people that I'm considering. I have not made, well, let's say this. On the men's side, I've not made a definitive uh, choice. I may have one the women. So let's start with the men. Um, I think we already have our next big three. So if you say the big three are Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, I think we know who the next big three are. And I think that's going to be Tsitsipas, Dominique Thiem, and Medvedev. 
I think those are the next big three. And I think we'll look five to six years out. And I think those will be the guys that will still be running the tour. Now, granted, there always could be somebody else that comes up and surprises you. You know, this is all speculation at best, right? But um, I think, and I, and guess what? What's awesome about that is I really like all three of those. Of the current big three, I like Roger and Rafa. I respect Djokovic, uh, but I can't say that I'm a huge fan of his. Um, but I really like all three of the the next-gen guys. If I had to pick, for me personally, which one I like the most, my answer today would be Medvedev. Uh, I like his fight. Uh, I like his quirky personality. I like uh, that he has a much more all-around game than you probably think. Um, so... I would probably go with him. You know, some people out there are probably thinking about, what about Zarev? What about Zarev? You know, I think Zarev will be, and I hate to say this because I love Stan Wawrinka. Um, I think he's going to be the kind of the Stan Wawrinka in the group. I think he may luck up on a couple of Grand Slam titles um, just because he, you know, he keeps himself in the mix. But I don't see him being a consistent factor. Let me be clear about something else. I don't think Stan Wawrinka lucked up on any of his. He absolutely won his. Um, but I think in terms of numbers, that's really more where you're going to see Zarev. Of course, you know, there's the whole thing out there with Kyrgios. Uh, you know, Kyrgios to me is like Rios with maybe a little less substance. Um, you know, he's, he's fun to watch, you know, because he's so talented and he can hit, you know, every shot. But... You know, even less than a month feast, you know, I just don't think he has the discipline nor the desire to really be one of the greats. And I don't think he will. And I think he'll continue to play as long as he can and he'll make a few bucks and he'll he'll make a few oohs and ahs in the stands. But I don't think he'll ever be in any of tennis's record books, nor do I think he cares to be, honestly. Uh, for the women, you know. This one's a little more, you know, I don't think the next group is so easily defined. Um, if I'm going to jump on board of any anybody, of course, I'm going with Coco Golf, right? Coco Golf, she's got age on her side. She's got maturity on her side. She's got Roger Federer's agent on her side. She's got Serena Williams, uh, you know, coach on her side. She's got great parents. She seems to have a, a wonderful personality. She has a locked-in doubles partner. She seems to have it all, right? She's getting the results very early and that makes her really look like the prodigy that she is. Um, how could you not pick Coco Golf? Uh, and then for me personally, she's African-American, which gives her a little extra flavor uh, for me. So that's probably who I'm going to go with. Uh, but I want to give some honorable mentions here. Taylor Townsend. You hear us talking about Taylor all the time and how much we love Taylor and, and how insanely talented she is. And when I talk to people in the industry, she seems to be very well liked. Um, you know, I don't mean to cause any hate or discontent here, but I do think there's a huge coaching issue with her. Um, and I there may even be some 
reflection issue uh, on Taylor's part. I think if she could get to the right coach that she would listen to and they put the right plan together, Taylor Townsend could be top five in the world. Easily. But I have not seen um, the receipts yet to indicate that she's either willing or able uh, to do that. So that's a wild card out for me. It is my desire that she does it. I keep my fingers crossed for that every day. Will it ever happen? I guess we just have to wait and see. I'm telling you somebody to watch out for. And I don't know why I have a feeling for this lady, but I just I just feel like she's going to surprise some people and she is going to be somebody to deal with. And that's this Rubacana. Her game is on point, on fire. She ain't afraid of nobody. Uh, she's not coming in with a whole lot of fanfare, so that I don't think she has a lot of excess drama to deal with. And I think if, you know, if, as long as she doesn't get injured or nothing unfortunate happens or she doesn't lose desire or whatever, I think her future is insanely bright. And I think she is easily top five in her career, if not top three. Um, I kind of just on a slightly lesser uh, note feel the same about uh, Gastrumska. And if you haven't been paying attention to her, she has been delivering some really good results. And and let's remind you, she is also the player that one of our favorite coaches, Sasha, who Osaka left because she wasn't happy, and he left, uh, who was he with? He was with oh, Kiki Mitlanovic, because apparently he wasn't happy. Um, She's got an amazing coach. And if anybody can get her to reach her potential, it's Sasha. Uh, so I think she definitely has top 10 potential. Not sure how far up in the top 10 she'll get, but she's somebody that I'm keeping my eye on. And then if I'm going to go, if I'm, if I'm going to have my deep reach, like who, who's my real dark horse? I put her, I compare her a little bit to Taylor Townsend in terms of the talent standpoint. Coco Golf's partner, Katie McNally, and shout out to the McNally family. I was raised in Cincinnati, so I know about y'all. I think she has the game to be a disruptor on the tour, like Taylor does. Uh, and and I can't forget that match she played against Serena. I mean, she really put it on display there. And in her doubles partnership with, with uh, Coco Golf, she is the better doubles player. If she can translate her skills into a solid singles game, which I don't I honestly don't think she's very far away from. Uh, I'm telling you, top five easily. Potential number one, even. I'm going to go that far uh, because she's a disruptor. Um, but once again, that's the a, that's a crazy thing about having these projections. You know, there's any one of a million things that can either confirm it for you, make, make these projections come true, 
or totally make you seem like you're a raving idiot and you didn't know what you were talking about. So anyway, y'all, I just want, I just felt like kind of sharing this this morning. And for any of you that wanted to take a walk down memory lane uh, from the 70s to the current time period and, and just kind of talk about some of those great players that we've had over the years. Um, it was enjoyable for me to talk about. Hopefully it was enjoyable for you to listen to. Hopefully you weren't bored out of your wits. But um, it was just kind of on me to have this conversation this morning. So I'm going to send this to Chet and Isaac. If they like it and want to post it, they can. Um, if, if they choose not to post it, then maybe one day I'll put it on my personal page or something like that, and I'll let you guys know, and you can listen to it then. So with that, everyone, please stay safe. It looks like the country is really starting to good to do a good job with the stay-at-home thing. Remember, it's not just about you. It's about everyone. So hang on to that thought and be good to each other. Take care. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.